The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to APT and Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast. This is your host, Puneet Daliwal, physical therapist and vestibular rehab specialist. And we discussed today about motion sickness and visually induced motion sickness with expert Dr. Behran Keshavars. Dr. Keshavars is a scientist at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, University Health Network, and an adjunct professor at Department of Psychology at Ryerson University, Toronto, Canada. He received his PhD in Cognitive and Experimental Psychology from the Johannes Gutenberg University, Mainz, Germany. Dr. Keshavar's research focuses on human perception and performance in virtual environments with particular emphasis on preventing adverse effects such as nausea and disorientation related to visually induced motion sickness. In addition, his research explores the neurocognitive and behavioral aspects of self-motion perception or vection in virtual reality applications and investigates methods to increase driving safety in younger and older drivers. Hello and welcome to the show, Dr. Behrang. Hi. Um, so Behrang, will you tell our listeners what is motion sickness? And I'm sure almost a lot of people have had motion sickness. Yeah, sure, exactly. As you mentioned, that's probably a sensation that everybody can relate to. Um, basically what motion sickness is, as you can imagine, when you travel by bus, by train, by car, by airplane, and you feel that very uncomfortable sensation of nausea, disorientation, you start sweating, you get tired, and so on and so forth. So that is motion sickness in a nutshell. So how is uh, visually induced motion sickness different than the traditional motion sickness? So it's very similar, first of all, in terms of like the symptoms that you can experience. But the difference is, as the term says, it's visually induced. So that means that physical motion is typically actually missing in visually induced motion sickness. Um, so the term motion sickness might be a bit misleading because you're actually not really moving. So the way you can um, imagine that is think about you're watching a movie, let's say, like an IMAX theater, and you're sitting in the theater and you're watching a movie on a large screen that has strong visual motion and you feel that you're actually moving but you're not. So that's visually induced motion sickness. Any symptoms that do not really include physical movement. Now, um, motion sickness or visually induced motion sickness, uh, the terminology sickness, is it a true sickness? Um, It's not really because um, every healthy person can become motion sick and visually induced motion sickness as long as like kind of like the stimulation or the stimulus is strong enough. So it's not really a sickness or a disease per se. So it's not like a clinical um, disease that you can classify. It's more like a sensation that every healthy adult can experience and kids, of course, as well. Now, uh, Behrang, are there any associated changes in anatomy or pathophysiology uh, when someone experiences, uh, like, uh, is there predominance in certain set of people, and as a result, there's some changes happening because of visual-induced uh, motion sickness? Well, yeah, there are two parts of that question, basically. So the first one is there's not really, as I mentioned, like in something like a pathophysiology 
pathophysiology in, in terms of visually induced motion sickness because everyone who's healthy, which means um, no disorders of the balance system or of the vestibular system can become visually induced motion sick. But there are differences, um, individual differences, that alter the susceptibility to visually induced motion sickness. So, for instance, there, um, in the literature, you can find some evidence that females report more motion sickness and visually induced motion sickness than men, for example. Um, there are age differences. Young kids, for example, when they're like young children, when they're born, infants, are kind of like immune to motion sickness until they're like two years old. I mean, they don't have a problem with uh, vomiting, but they it's usually not due to motion sickness. And then it starts to peak around the age of like eight, nine, and 10, when they're like very susceptible to motion sickness. And then it becomes better again, it decreases. Whereas um, for visually induced motion sickness, we do not really know what happens in the very young ages. But as you become older, there's another second peak in visually induced motion sickness. So older people have been shown to be more susceptible to visually induced motion sickness than younger adults. Now, as you mentioned about the children, uh, and I'm sure we'll have a couple of our um, clinicians who will be listening to our podcast and they work with the pediatric group. Um, if, there in, if, if it peaks and it uh, passes down, is there something specific that a clinician needs to do? Uh, in terms to treat it or... Uh, in terms of like assessment value, like uh, for example, a, a child comes to us and the mm -hmm. child we know is going to peak around eight, nine or 10 years of age. Mm -hmm. And then we decide that, well, we are going to expect this peak value. Should we reassure the parent and the child that, you know, as mm -hmm. you age, the motion sickness is going to get better um, or yeah. that we should step away from that, um, that uh, hope for, for our patients. Well, um, so typically, as I mentioned, um, once you reach that peak in your life, when you're really susceptible to motion sickness, for most people, it becomes better afterwards. So when they get older, when they get into their teens and, and even older, then um, it decreases constantly. And most adults don't have a big problem with motion sickness. Um, but that's only true for certain situations, right? So for example, when you look at a very classic situation, like being a passenger in a car and reading a book, so a lot of adults have problems doing that as well. But the reason why you can still sit in a car and drive without having to deal constantly with, nause with nausea is basically because you stop reading. So you just look out of the window so you know how to cope with that. So right. I think it's fair to say that for most people it will get better, but there's a small percentage of the population, no matter what they do, no matter what training they do, they're still quite susceptible to motion sickness and suffer from nausea constantly. But it's a very small number, around like one to maybe five percent. Oh, that's good to know. Now, um, as um, it's still a genetic component, um, especially if parents have it, uh, will the child yeah. also have it? Um, there's not much research that I know of looking at genetics. I mean, there's some indication that genetics play a role, obviously. For example, when you look at twin studies, it's quite common that twins, especially when they're like kids, um, have a very similar likelihood of experiencing motion sickness. Um, it changes a bit when they get older because motion sickness is also very much driven by your experience of different being exposed to different situations and motion patterns. Um, but otherwise, well, there are some, some indications that there's also an effect of ethnicity. 
So for example, Chinese are known to be hypersusceptible to motion sickness. So there seems to be some indication that genetics play a role, but the precise like, characteristics of the genetic component is not well understood as far as I know. Okay. And um, will it also make a difference if there's a presence of motion sickness as a child, will it predispose them as an adult mm-hmm. to poor prognosis? Um, um, and if, they, if they develop a, a vestibular dysfunction, will it be a poor prognosis for them just because they had uh, motion sickness as a child? Well, if they develop a dysfunction, that might be a different different topic then. But in general, like when you're like healthy, and as I, as I said, like motion sickness affects everyone. So if you're typically very susceptible to motion sickness, there's I would say the likelihood is higher that you experience it as an adult as well. But you cannot say for certain that somebody who is very susceptible to motion sickness as a child will be very susceptible to motion sickness as an adult because, as I mentioned, it decreases over the years when you get older. Okay, but if, it's, if someone already has an underlying condition, then there's a higher chance mm-hmm. that they may experience it more. Well, there, now, there are, are some, yeah. No, go ahead, please. Uh, well, just to add to that, there are some underlying conditions that are related to motion sickness. For example, if you suffer from migraines or from dizziness, that is related to motion sickness and some vestibular disorders as well. I mean, if you have a complete bilateral loss of the vestibular system, you're kind of like immune to motion sickness. That's one of the few benefits that you have if you suffer from bilateral vestibular loss. But if you have a vestibular dysfunction, um, there is some indication that that might actually be worse for visually induced motion sickness and motion sickness. Now, what are the chief symptoms of visually induced motion sickness? Um, the main symptoms um, are similar to those of motion sickness. So the cardinal symptoms often are you start sweating, so it's cold sweating, you become pale. Um, nausea is one of the main symptoms. And different than traditional motion sickness, vomiting is not that common in visually induced motion sickness. And also, in what's different between visually induced motion sickness and motion sickness is that you have um, a lot of symptoms that are related to the oculomotor system, like eye strain, blurred vision, and so on and so forth, which makes sense because it's visually induced. So you often have to focus on visual displays. That could be like a TV screen, a computer screen, but also like head-mounted displays or VR glasses. So it makes sense that the oculomotor issues are more dominant than in traditional motion sickness. And um, can we categorize uh, visual-induced motion sickness into acute and chronic condition? Um, Officially, no, because uh, visually-induced motion sickness is not really like an established diagnostic criteria, basically. Um, Of course, you could say if somebody experiences visually-induced motion sickness in one instant, it's an acute phase of it. And if you keep repeating it and still get visually-induced motion sickness, you can say, well, I have a tendency to suffer from visually induced motion sickness, but you cannot officially um, categorize them into acute or chronic. Now, there's, a, there's another terminology called visually induced dizziness, and it, it, uh, it comes often in vestibular uh, mm-hmm. literature. Would you tell our listeners if there's any difference between visually induced motion sickness and visually mm-hmm. induced dizziness? Yeah, uh, well, as the term already says, one visually induced Dizziness focused on the symptoms of dizziness exclusively, whereas visually induced motion sickness is a broader term. So includes dizziness as one of the symptoms, 
but it's not the main symptom. So as I mentioned, you have like nausea, you have sweating, you have pallor. Um, you also have like fatigue or supine related symptoms. You have oculomotor issues, disorientation. So it goes well beyond visually induced dizziness. But at the same time, both are visually driven, which means stimulation of the eyes lead to that condition that you experience. But there's a difference in, in symptomatology. I would say that's the main difference between the two. What are the chief underlying theories for the development of uh, vestibular-induced motion sickness? Mm, um, there are multiple theories, but probably the one that is most common in the literature is a sensory conflict theory. Um, so basically what that means is when you move through space or when you, you have very precise sensation of how your body position is in space and you use different sensory information to get to that conclusion how your body is moving through space, which includes the visual system, so the eyes, the vestibular system, and the proprioceptive system. And usually under normal circumstances, those three systems are in concert with each other. But under certain conditions, you get a sensory conflict. So which means one system is signaling something different than the other system. And if that mismatch is apparent and it's strong enough, then the body can react with motion sickness. So that's like a very rough description of that theory. There are, there's, it's important to say that it's not that simple in reality because otherwise you could predict very easily when you become sick in which situation, which is clearly not always the case. For example, you could put me in a car and I'm able to read. Maybe you are not able to read in a car, although we both have the same amount of sensory conflict, the same situation. But that goes back to like individual differences, so your past experience, basically. If you do something over and over again, your body habituates to it and you don't become sick anymore. So that's one of the theories, like sensory conflict. And there are some other theories involving the control of your balance, the postural control, and also like eye movements have been related to the amount of visually induced motion sickness in the past. Those are what are the three main theories. Would you discuss a little bit more about like how is postural instability uh, mm -hmm. uh, very closely related to visually induced motion sickness? Yeah, so there's a theory um, called postural instability hypothesis um, that predicts that the main reason why you suffer from motion sickness is not necessarily the sensory conflict, but it's the uh, the loss of postural control. So we can like you can imagine like that when you when you stand straight without doing the task you always sway a little bit to the right and to the left and fore and back. And that amount of sway um, usually do not control. But if you become motion sick, that amount of sway changes. So you sway less or you sway more. And that usually predicts and precedes the sensation of motion sickness. That's at least what some of the studies indicate. However, that um, theory cannot explain all the findings, which is why the theory has been discussed controversially in the past. And that's, like, in a nutshell, again, how postural control is related to motion sickness. And you also mentioned the strong role of oculomotor function in uh, mm -hmm. vision-induced motion sickness. Um, is there any evidence, or is it also a conflicting theory for uh, vision-induced motion sickness? Um, well, all of the theories are somewhat conflicting because uh, not every theory can explain every outcome and every finding, but all of the theories have their own merits, right? And, and for eye movements, there is some evidence for that. So, um, for example, playing a video game often, or not often, but, but can 
cause visually induced motion sickness in some gamers. Um, and some video games that are very prone to inducing visually induced motion sickness introduce kind of like a fixation cross or a fixation point in the center of the screen to minimize the eye movement. And that helps indeed to reduce visually induced motion sickness. So there is some evidence that in fixation cross, for example, or anything that fixates your gaze and reduces the amount of eye movement can also reduce motion sickness. Now, I also have uh, noticed that there's uh, also conflicting evidence, and I wouldn't say conflicting, but really mm. regarding neural pathways, we don't really know enough about it. Is it true? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there is some knowledge about like what areas of the brain are involved during motion sickness, but it's not really fully understood. So there are parts of, obviously, like the vestibular system is, uh, plays a very crucial role. There are parts of the brainstem, for example, parts of the cerebellum, um, the vomiting center, the reticular formation, hypothalamus, limbic system. Those are all involved, but the precise nature of that network is not really well understood. And are these pathways, uh, neural pathways, similar to that of traditional motion sickness or specifically for visually induced motion sickness, it's different? Um, they should be very, there's no reason to believe that they are not um, similar. Um, but to be honest, I'm not aware of many studies that looked at the neural pathways for visually induced motion sickness. They mostly looked at motion sickness. Um, to give you one example, like the vestibular organ, for example, is very crucial for real, like traditional motion sickness because it has been shown if you have a bilateral loss of the vestibular organ that you're immune to motion sickness, but the same does not necessarily have to be true for visually induced motion sickness. So there is some evidence that even if you have a bilateral loss of the vestibular system, that you can still experience slight symptoms of visually induced motion sickness. So um, the vestibular organ is crucial um, specifically for traditional motion sickness, but also for visually induced motion sickness, but it's not really well understood how much it really contributes to the sensation of visually induced motion sickness. Now, you mentioned already that this is a more very natural phenomenon. It can occur in, in healthy people and probably it's stronger in people who have some associated conditions like migraines or previous uh, uh, dizziness. Can we treat it? Um, you mean like long-term treated or short-term um, or both? Short-term, at least. Can we, can we say that, okay, these are the following treatments, uh, any mm -hmm. medication or non-pharmacological treatments that can mm -hmm. be introduced uh, for this group of people so that they feel better, even if it's for a short term? Mm. Yeah, that, that's tough, to be honest, to fully prevent it or make sure that, no, that you never get it in any situation. Because first of all, there's so many individual differences and every situation is different as well, right? Um, yeah. You can, there are medications for traditional motion sickness, obviously, and they do a pretty good job, I would say. There are also studies showing that like one of the standard medications for traditional motion sickness, scopolamine, is also effective for visually induced motion sickness, but they always are, well, not always, but very often have side effects. So you become fatigued, you become drowsy, or you might even get cognitively impaired. So this is why you probably don't want to take that medication when you want to play a video game or watch a movie. So this is why I personally, in, in our lab, I don't focus on medication. I try to find other techniques to reduce it. 
And the best way that you can make sure that you do not suffer from visually induced motion sickness is habituation or training, basically. So that means if you over and over expose yourself to the nauseating stimulus, after a while, your organism adapts to it and you do not get sick any longer, which sounds easier than it's done because it can be a tedious process to put yourself through a nauseating stimulus again and again until you feel fine. But that's the best way you can do it or the most um, like also like long term, the best way to do it. But there obviously there are other methods that you can try to reduce it. So, for example, you have on the technical side, you have some aspects that you can modify. For example, the field of view, which is basically the size of the screen and how far you are sitting from the screen. The screen affects visually induced motion sickness. So the closer you are to a screen and the bigger the screen, the higher the chance that you experience visually induced motion sickness. So try if you play a video game at home and you don't feel comfortable doing it, just move further back from the screen. That's one, one very simple solution. It might not always work, obviously, when you are in a lab and you want to have a large screen, then it doesn't work. Um, you can try to manipulate cognitive factors. So that's what I often do. So I try to create an environment that participants, when they come to my lab, feel comfortable in. So that can be like the presentation of pleasant music, of smells that they like, or having constant airflow to give them some fresh air, um, to reduce kind of the level of discomfort before they go and make an experiment in my lab. So that has been shown to reduce motion sickness as well. And then there are some other things where the literature has mixed findings, let's say, for example, about like ginger or acupuncture and so on and so forth. Yes, that was my future question for you about uh, how does vegetable rehab play a role? And it is very yeah. true. Uh, we do uh, do a lot of habituation training for our patients. Yeah. And it is very tough uh, when patient is nauseated. And um, with me uh, personally, when I have tried to help patients, um, I usually try to keep some ginger candy or maybe peppermint uh, for them. Yeah. I have even had one a uh, person who a uh, patient would come to me they're like I hate peppermint I think I'm better yeah. off without it it'll probably make me more nauseated yeah. and so it makes more sense that if it's a more pleasant distraction uh, perhaps something that they like more would be uh, more acceptable uh, while mm -hmm. I train them for habituation and I agree with you it is very difficult to put someone into a situation that they hate to go into so uh, in your lab, is there, uh, what kind of research specifically are you doing in your lab? Um, well, the lab that we have in at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, we have multiple labs that use virtual reality environments. For example, we have a driving simulator. We have a simulator that has a large dome-shaped screen where you can walk on a treadmill while virtually navigating through um, space. And those Simulators can, under certain circumstances, induce visually induced motion sickness in some of our participants or, or patients. So we want to prevent that, obviously. So my research focuses basically on finding out what is causing them to make the motion sick, visually induced motion sickness, and how can we prevent it. So in my research, I try to find non-medical treatments for it because, as I mentioned, medication often has side effects. And for example, when you bring in a participant and you want to investigate how well do they perform in a driving task, you cannot risk that they're already impaired when they go into the car, right? So this is why this is not going to work and we're looking 
for non-medical countermeasures. And as I mentioned, um, some of the work that I recently have been working on was trying to um, increase the level of comfort before they go into the driving simulator, for example, by presenting pleasant music, smells, airflow, moderating the temperature, for example, of the room, like the body temperature is also associated with the um, occurrence of visually induced motion sickness. Um, and so on and so forth. And besides that, and you mentioned that in the intro, so motion sickness is related to different other virtual reality phenomena as well. For example, the sensation of self-motion that you can experience in VR or the level of how much you are immersed in virtual reality. So I try to investigate how do these three phenomena relate to each other and what's the nature of this relationship. Now, uh, would you also discuss a little bit more about what is this uh, self-motion uh, perception? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's called vection. That's like the, um, like the term for it. And you can, there's a very everyday situation that, again, almost everybody can relate to, which means imagine you sit in a stationary train at the train station, and next to you there's another train also stationary. And now the other train starts to move, and sometimes you get the feeling that your train actually started to move. So have you ever had that sensation? Absolutely. Yeah, so that is, that is the illusion of self-motion. So you really feel that you're moving, but you're actually not. And you can have the same illusion in virtual reality quite easily. For example, imagine you sit in a, in a driving simulator when you're surrounded entirely by screens, by projection screens, so you see a virtual world wherever you look, and then you start driving. You feel the movement, although you're not really moving. So that's the sensation of action. And historically, that has been linked to the sensation of motion sickness as well, due to the sensory conflict. And as it, I, I personally believe that action is one of the key elements for motion sickness, but it's not sufficient, because you can have a very strong sensation of self-motion without getting sick. But at the same time, when you become sick, you usually have that sensation of self-motion as well. But it's not like the, the, the crucial element that is sufficient to make you motion sick. So there needs something needs to come on top of that. Now, there are different forms of treatment interventions that are being used in vestibular clinics, uh, depending upon how much money someone can uh, invest. You come from a university setting, so you probably would have an opportunity for a fully immersive virtual reality. Um, have you noticed the difference between uh, virtual, fully immersive, like an Oculus, yeah. or a Karen system versus a low-tech technology? You mentioned about the visual field. Is there a difference yeah. in these different kinds of virtual reality uh, atmospheres that we have uh, different outcomes? Yeah. Uh, in terms of symptomatology? Yeah, that, that's difficult to answer because it's not only the equipment that you use, but it's primarily the task that participants are involved with. So um, let's say, for example, you have a driving simulator that is high-end and very sophisticated, and you only go straight, like highway driving straight roads. So people will not get very much sick in that situation, and they will not get a lot of sickness when they do that in a driving simulator that only consists of three computer desk screens, right? But right. as soon as you start introducing like turns and brakes and acceleration, the highly sophisticated driving simulator, which may also have like motion capacities, might cause less sickness than the stationary three screen um, driving simulator. So it's not the equipment per se, it's a combination of equipment 
and the stimulus that you present and the tasks that participants are asked to do. Another example would be, but there are technological features. So for example, if the frame rate is not high, that can increase the chance of motion sickness. If the resolution of the video is low, that increases the chance of motion sickness. So there are some technical elements, but overall it's quite complex. So you cannot easily say older systems are worse in, in, in reducing motion sickness. Right, so that it's, it's strongly task-influenced as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's a combination of both. But the right. task is, I would say, more important. Okay. So, um, uh, finally, um, when, we, when we treat these group of patients and when you see it in your research, have you mm-hmm. noticed a relapse with, uh, like, you, you suggest that one should habituate it, uh, mm-hmm. And then let's suppose someone gets better. Do they, can they relapse again to develop visually induced motion sickness? Um, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, so habituation is, in terms of motion sickness, it's very specific to the situation that you habituated to. So when you come to our lab and you come to our driving simulator and drive it 10 times, you might be perfectly fine with our driving simulator. But now if you go into another driving simulator, whether visuals are different, where the steering behavior might be a bit different, a bit off, um, then you might get it again. So it's no guarantee. I mean, the likelihood reduces and, um, and is limited, but there's still a chance that you might feel visually induced motion sickness again. And because, as I mentioned, and this is important to emphasize again, it's a natural response that every healthy person can have. So it's not necessarily something that only patients get, right? So this is why you can have it in every situation Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't get it. For example, I myself, I sometimes get a bit nauseated when I'm sitting in the subway, and sometimes I don't. So there are many factors affecting that. Have you um, also noticed that does anxiety or any psychiatric uh, conditions that Mm. can predispose one to develop? uh, uh, I mean, it's a natural thing, but does it become Mm. more predominant in this group of patients? Um, With Psychiatric disorders, there's not much evidence that they're tightly related. Like anxiety has been listed as one potential um, aspect that may increase the chance of motion sickness, but the evidence is not really there in the literature, to be honest. Same for personality traits. To be, and there are like correlations around like 0.3 at best. Some personality traits that you might be more susceptible to motion sickness. There are some other conditions like, as I mentioned, like dizziness, migraine, Meniere's disease, and so on, that increase the comorbidity with motion sickness, if you want so. Um, But personality-wise or psychological disorders are not really related to it. No, not much. For a quick, um, like a short uh, take-home message for Mm -hmm. everybody, what would you talk about uh, visually induced uh, motion sickness? I would probably say, if you experience visually induced motion sickness, don't panic. It's a natural reaction that everybody can have. So it's nothing, so to speak, wrong with you if you experience visually induced motion sickness. I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. That's great. Thank you so much for all your expertise today. And uh, it was great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you.